Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Jeffrey J. Kripal. Jeffrey is the Associate Dean of the Faculty and Graduate Programs in the School of the Humanities and the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. He is also the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research and the Chair of the Board at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. Jeff is the author of eight books, including, most recently, The Flip, Who You Really Are and Why It Matters, which is what we talk a lot about today. In that book, he envisions the future centrality and urgency of the humanities in conversation with the history of science, the philosophy of mind, and our shared ethical, political, and ecological challenges. He is presently working on a three-volume study of paranormal currents in the sciences, modern esoteric literature, and the hidden history of science fiction for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled The Superstory, Science Fiction, and Some Emergent Mythologies. There he intuits and writes out a new emerging spectrum of superhumanities in both senses of that expression. His full body of work can be found at jeffreykripal.com. All right, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, uh, as we were saying, as I was saying just a moment ago, um, I've really enjoyed reading your book, which is called "The Flip: Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge," um, which was uh, just uh, published earlier this year. Uh, I found it to be really a, a quite refreshing book. I found myself throughout the book while I was reading it um, saying yes to myself. <laughs> so uh, it was quite quite a great read, and um, and I definitely highly recommend it to everybody who's listening. Um, so let's just dive right into the to the content of the book. I guess the first question, of course, would be, what is the flip, um, uh, Jeffrey? So the flip is simply put when a an intellectual who's been trained in some form of materialism scientific or medical or or technical has some kind of life-changing experience and flips over to a worldview that is has some place for consciousness or mind in it and the material world still there but it becomes in essence secondary so one flips from a world in which there is only matter or primarily matter to a world in which there is only mind or primarily mind. That's essentially the flip. And I look really almost exclusively in this book at scientists and engineers and medical professionals because those those are the people whose conversion stories, I think, carry the most weight in our contemporary moment. Yeah. Well, what one of the things that, you know, of course, for the community who's listening to this podcast, they, you know, in some sense, it's the choir, right? They don't really need to be convinced largely that these kinds of experiences are possible. Um, and so what's kind of refreshing about your book is that it's it's directed towards the skeptics, right? It, it's written for those people who need to be kind of led to this understanding through a kind of certain sequence of, of, of thoughts or logical steps. Um, mm. And then you also, of course, you know, address some of the obstacles in our own kind of cultural worldview that obstruct our ability to even um, acknowledge the existence of these experiences. And so like you're saying, you 
you bring up a lot of um, really well-respected figures, scientists, um, Mark Twain, Francis Bacon, Hans Berger, A.J. Ayer, who was, you know, a logical positivist, and, and many others. So would you share just a few examples of these experiences that you unpack in the book as they, you know, relate to this experience of the flip? Yeah, so, but, Jacob, maybe before that, I can just say a word about why I use those people. I mean, I... Essentially, the book, the whole book operates behind enemy lines Yeah. to use a bad, a really bad military metaphor because <laughs> it's really not an agonistic book. It's really not an anti-science or anti-knowledge. Oh, no, book. It, definitely it's not. Very warm and affectionate to those people. I mean, the origins of the book really are in my teaching experience at Rice University and, and Rice is very much a STEM school. The, the students are going to be future doctors and scientists and engineers. And mm. I teach this big survey course, which we call Rally 101. And for the first couple of years I taught it, I used kind of classical religious texts, which had these same sorts of experiences in them. But I realized that these, these young people just thought these religious people were crazy. Yeah. I mean, they just they could just e instantly dismiss them as superstitious and pre-scientific and ignorant. Yeah. So I th I thought you know if I use scientists and engineers saying the exact same thing they're not going to be able to do that. Exactly. And of course it worked. Um, so some of the cases I look at, um, some of them are historical, some of them are contemporary. The historical cases including include Hans Berger who basically invented the EEG or what would become the EEG. A.J. Iyer, the, the great atheist and logical positivist. Uh, Michael Shermer, by the way, the great American skeptic. Mm. Um, Wolfgang Pauli, the, the quantum physicist. Um, but also the contemporary neuroscientist Marjorie uh, Heinz Woolicott. Um, Eben Alexander, the, the neurosurgeon who, who wrote a best-selling book on his near-death experience. And a computer scientist, a Dutch computer scientist named Bernardo Kastrup, who works today in this field and, and writes really powerful books mm. about all of these subjects. So I, those are the main case studies. I mean, there are others. There's the there's Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize for his invention of the PCR process in 1993, and had a massive abduction experience on his cabin. Um, you know, and that, what's interesting about that is that he he dis, he doesn't actually narrate it in terms of this was an alien abduction. He kind of like he he manages to express the experience without defaulting to that explanation, right? Which is sort of right. interesting. Well, there there are actually two really interesting things about that case. So this is Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize for in chemistry in 1993, and he publishes his memoirs. A decade or so after that and there's this chapter in it called no aliens allowed which i think is already kind of ironic right i mean so he 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 sets aside the alien abduction interpretation but he kind of suggests it as well it's not really clear yeah the chapter what's interesting about that case is like many of these cases the scientist does not speak of these things until after retirement <laughs> And I, I find that really interesting. Yeah, definitely. As a humanist who um, has no no standing in in the world of knowledge, so they're protecting themselves. The other thing that's interesting about that case is it was, it's really a triple case. 
uh, uh, Mullis's daughter had a similar abduction experience on the same property, completely independent of her dad. Wow. And another Japanese scientist had a virtually identical experience, again, on the same property, also independent of Mullis and, and his daughter. So you have three completely separate individuals all reporting basically the same phenomenology on the same in the same location all independently and all not knowing about the others. So that's a really unique case in many ways um, and really striking. Uh, and what's interesting about Mullis's take on it is he's so, I think, rightfully skeptical of the visionary component of it. You know, he doesn't believe what he saw. Hmm. Uh, what he sees actually is like a Guardians of the Galaxy episode. I mean, he literally sees a glowing... Um, a raccoon <laughs> on his way to pee after, you know, around midnight in the outhouse. And the raccoon says to him, uh, good evening, doctor. Mm. And the next thing he knows, it's six hours later and he's walking up the road to his cabin. So he knew the visionary component was some kind of hologram or some kind of generated, uh, um, absurd visionary display, mm. but he was absolutely adamant that this happened and that it was real and that his science can say nothing about it. Yeah. It was just, there's nothing we can do with it. We can't repeat it. We can't measure it. We can't, we can't do anything with this, but it, but don't tell me it didn't happen because mm. of course it happened. So in, in accepting kind of the absurdity of the vision, is it safe to say then that he kind of, he doesn't affirm or reject the experienced, experience on the basis of the content of the experience itself, but on the results or the effects of that experience? Right. I mean, this is where he's a good intellectual. I mean, he's a real kind of implicit scholar of religion. He takes the experience very seriously, but he doesn't buy for a second its its visionary content. He, 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 he understands it's generated somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and he, you know, he senses a presence behind the, the content. Um, so that's, and that's not really technically a flip. You know, Mullis doesn't flip, excuse me, because of that. Um, but it's such a, it's, it's such a fascinating story by a, a world-class scientist that I thought it was worth including in the book. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, you know, you were talking just a moment ago about how um, many of these intellectual scientists don't speak about these experiences until they retire, which I think is quite interesting um, and not surprising, of course. Um, and for reasons that we're going to get to in a moment. Um, but even, you know, for you, I feel like this book is, is relatively ballsy. And I imagine it might not have been something that you would have written early in your academic career. So what happened to you and what was your flip such that you uh, felt it so important to write this book? Well, yeah, I've sort of been I was burned early. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> my. My dissertation in first book was on a, a Hindu saint named Ramakrishna, and I was looking at the homoerotic aspects of his visions and ecstasies, and these were really obvious in the Bengali, but they had all been suppressed or, or translated away in the English. And I simply showed that um, in the book. Maybe simply is not fair. I showed that through, you know, three, four hundred pages of textual analysis, and it just it just erupted. Um, it, it was a storm in, in India that lasted about four years. There were two national band movements. It was debated in parliament. Um, oh my gosh, that's wild. I, I was targeted 
on the internet. I mean, this is before what we call cyberbullying, but it was cyberbullying, and, and it was kind of it was threatening, it was scary, uh, it was well funded, it was well organized by essentially Hindu fundamentalists in the computer industry, mm. um, and it pretty much destroyed my name and my mm. career in that field uh, because I had no way of answering it. I didn't have any resources. I was just a, basically a, a kid or a young man trying to, you know, make a living and, and start a career. So after that experience, which lasted about seven years, uh, I sent pretty much nothing. <laughs> I won't say nothing, but very little bothers me because I just compare it to that. And I'm like, oh, that's nothing. You know, I mean, that was truly horrific and yeah. truly awful. And the other thing that happened to me, though, Jacob, it, it's really not just Kali's child. It later on in my career, say at about oh five or so, um, I decided I made a conscious decision to stop writing for scholars alone mm. and start writing for the public. And I tried over and over again to reach other audiences. And the way I put that is, I I got tired of writing for fifty people in the world, yeah, twenty five of whom hated me. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much a summary of the academic. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I, I'm done with that. I don't, I don't think it really gets us very far. And I think I can do a lot more good in the world by reaching more people um, with this incredible thing we call the study of religion, which I, to this day, I think is just this kind of secret powerhouse that, that people don't really recognize as such. And so I've sort of made it, my personal mission to, you know, spread this, this technique or this, the, these sets of ideas to broader and broader audiences. And the flip, you know, it's, it really comes out of about 15 years of meeting with scientists uh, at, at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, mostly physicists, quantum physicists mostly, who are basically crazy, uh, and neuroscientists and, and biologists and people who who just live in these worlds but but who were also open to these kinds of experiences and when when i of course say they're crazy i say that with affection i mean anything in religion however however wild and and baroque and gothic religion gets it's nothing compared to how quantum physicists talk yeah they they just live in a in a reality that is just completely nonsensical. And so hanging out with them for 15 years, I mean, really woke me up to how far the scientific picture has gone, has come and how little we actually know about it. You know, it was a real humbling, it was really an exercise in humility, um, really on all of our parts. So um, I want to talk, ask you about that because you do remark about that and it's interesting in the book. So on, on one level, you know, there is this kind of respect, widespread cultural respect and understanding that quantum physics is like this wild thing. And that, and yet you remark in the book how we have yet to really kind of integrate the, you know, what it all means into our culture. And we're, and our culture itself, our popular culture, our intellectual culture is still pervaded by this kind of reductive materialism. So can you talk a little bit about the politics of knowledge such that we have been unable thus far to integrate, you know, essentially the spiritually 
complementary, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, perspectives that quantum physics offers. Yeah. So, you know, we haven't even integrated Copernicus yet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. We still, we still talk about sunrise and sunset, even though yeah. the sun doesn't rise. That's, in, that's interesting. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're like well, 500 years behind on that one. <laughs> You know, we haven't integrated evolutionary biology either. I mean, we're still in this binary debate on whether evolution is real or not. And there are very few people in the public space who are trying to carve out a middle space and saying, well, of course it's real and let's talk about it and let's see how it might um, might be integrated into our larger spiritual and cultural worlds. So I think a lot of that work, though, has actually been done and is being done. I think with quantum physics... There are some wonderful physicists and wonderful writers trying to do this. I'm thinking of Philip Ball, uh, who, if you haven't read, you, you should read. Um, you know, Philip really makes this case that we need artists and cultural creatives and poets to really help us reimagine reality after quantum physics. That we don't we don't have the language to do this. We don't even ha we don't have the concepts. We don't have the metaphors. Clearly, these ideas don't fit into our, you know, cognitive and imaginative um, practices at the moment. And so he really thinks we, we essentially need new art and, and a new imagination. And I, I agree with that. I think that's right. I also think a lot of that is happening. But unfortunately, the physicists tend to make fun of it. You know, there's a large literature on the physics of consciousness in the human potential movement, for example, and what most people would think of as new age literature and we can critique it for its, you know, lack of discipline or its lack of knowing this or that about the physics. But I think it's doing real work. And I think people are trying to integrate this in to the broader culture. So, I mean, that's really what I'm most interested in today is how these sciences are really changing how people experience something spiritually and then how they express that spiritually mm. um, because I think that is happening um, yeah, so yeah I mean uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about this kind of you know obstacle of a certain um, perspective on materialism and I want to read something from your book if I can find it here um, 104 but but here is the elephant in the proverbial living room. We haven't the slightest idea how matter makes the leap from insentience to sentience, from dead stuff to us. Nevertheless, we are asked to believe that somehow this is the case. When it is pointed out that such a belief is just that, a belief, we are then told that someday we will prove that consciousness is an emergent property of matter and that the materialist interpretation of science is finally the correct one. We are given the hollow shell of a promissory materialism. We are asked to believe. Um, and I, I love this. I love this idea of, you know, materialism, this mode of perspective of materialism requiring a kind of belief system and which then just makes it another religion, right, in a certain kind of way. Yeah, I mean, one of the things the physicists taught me, which, you know, frankly surprised me, I, I thought physics was all about the nature of matter. And, I, you know, I naively entered this long conversation with these people along those lines. And they just reminded me again and again that they don't have the slightest idea what matter is. Mm. And, you know, what they would always say to me is, look, we can tell you how matter behaves. We can tell you how it's structured. We can predict its behavior with great mathematical and statistical significance and precision. But we're not even allowed to ask 
what it is, that's 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 not a scientific question. And so that really that really struck me, you know, that there that there's just sort of this complete question mark at the heart of modern science and that modern science really is a is a science of of how, not not why or what. Mm-hmm. And um so that that was a big turning point I think for me and it gave me a lot of respect for these particular scientists and not a whole lot of respect for those scientists who just equate science and materialism you know because what the flip really is so the flip is about scientists who have these experiences and they realize after the flip that actually materialism is just an interpretation of the science that the science never even needed it mm-hmm. um and that their science works just fine in this new ontology or this new metaphysics and and it's that kind of that kind of splitting or that kind of division between the science and the interpretation of science that I think is really something we still have to do in the broader culture because it has really nasty cultural effects. Uh, Can you talk material- about what those are? Well, materialism, you know, for all of its glories in terms of refrigerators and cell phones and atomic bombs um, is a utterly depressing, oh, so uh, depressing. Me- meaningless nihilistic worldview and to the extent that scientists keep pushing materialism as what science is they're just they're just arguing themselves into a cultural corner they're never going to get out of mm-hmm. and human beings are not going to put up with that and they're not they're going to turn to other forms of belief that are often as destructive and and even more naive because of that meaningless and that nihilism and so that's one of, there's a whole point, there's a whole section in this book called How Not to Make Fundamentalism Stronger. And the basic answer is stop equating science with materialism. Just stop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that will turn the tide. Um, but to the extent we conflate those two, we're, we're heading down a, a bad, bad road. Yeah. Well, one of the ways in which science gets conflated with materialism is in... Um, neuroscience, at least some versions of it, where the brain is assumed to be kind of the origin of consciousness. And then, you know, we're supposed to somehow explain how firing neurons leads to subjectivity. Um, And so you talk about the brain as a kind of transmitter, like a radio um, in in the book, which, uh, and so um, why is the idea that matter is, uh, we're talking about it, you know, fundamental, and the brain is the origin of consciousness, or maybe we're talking, we've talked about how the idea that matter is fundamental is problematic, but why is also the, the idea that the brain is the origin of consciousness problematic, besides just being wrong? Well, it's just another restatement of materialism. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that what we think of as the subject or the person or the spirit or the soul or whatever language you want is really just a, an illusion that's produced in toto by the brain firing in, in complex sequences. And of course, when the brain stops firing, um, you know, <laughs> that subjectivity just goes poof. It's just gone, gone and like a light goes out when you turn the switch off. So, you know, that's what we call the production thesis. And that's what we're asked to believe in kind of conventional neuroscience. But the the irony is, is there's absolutely no proof of it. Mm -hmm. There's no way to show that. Uh, There's certainly ways to suggest that uh, all states of consciousness that are human certainly are correlated 
with different kinds of brain states. No one questions that. But no one's been able to even come close to show how the brain produces consciousness, probably because it doesn't. Um, and there's this other model, you know, in the history of the philosophy of mind called the reduction thesis or the filter thesis, in which the brain certainly correlates and reduces and translates and uh, transforms consciousness into Jacob or Jeff, but it itself is not us and it doesn't originate in the brain. We're more like a cell phone, you know, interfacing with the internet. The internet is not affected when you throw your cell phone against the wall in frustration. It, the internet doesn't care, but your cell phone certainly does. And the personal interface might cease to function. Um, but again, that, that says nothing about the, the, the signal. And there's a lot, what I, what I talk about in the book, you know, this is of course an old, it's probably the oldest thesis on the planet. It's, it's certainly shared by all the religions in some form, but it's also more and more where a lot of the philosophy of mind's going. Mm -hmm. And they're not going there in a religious sense. They're going there, you know, they talk about panpsychism, or they talk about cosmopsychism, or they talk about all these other psychisms, but they really all boil down to this idea that consciousness is not produced by the brain. It's, it's, it's in the cosmos. It is the cosmos, like gravity or force. And the brain is this highly evolved uh, organ that picks up this cosmic consciousness and reduces it into a human person. And to me, that 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 actually makes a lot of sense of the of the literature I work with, yeah. which is, of course, comparative mystical literature. So I, I actually like that idea. I think it it just makes a lot of intuitive sense. And I also like the fact that a lot of conventional neuroscience is just a spectacular failure. Um, because they're 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 assuming this production thesis, and it it just ain't so. It, ain't it just it, it ain't working. And we were supposed to prove this, you know. This was the, a couple decades ago was the decade of the brain, and it, it didn't happen. And we just we're just told, well, give us enough time. And I'm like, no, you, it's not going to work. And, and, you know, you, how long do you go down a path with the wrong model? How much time do you want to waste? Um, so, and it's so interesting that there seems to be, you know, it's like, we look back at the past history of science, and we see the overturning of models over and over. And then we just happen to think that we live in the time when all the models happen to be correct. It's just so naive. This is what historians of science call presentism. Yeah. Yeah. And presentism is the naive conflation of the present state of science with all human, with all possible knowledge, which is, of course, ridiculous. But it's so ridiculous. What, yeah. Um, so um, you uh, you talk about, like you were saying, panpsychism, dual these different ways of addressing this idea of consciousness being primary panpsychism, dual aspect monism, quantum mind, cosmopsychism. Um, I'm wondering which one, uh, well, I'm, first of all, I'm wondering uh, maybe if you could give some names of some philosophers of mind who are doing that in case uh, listeners are interested in kind of doing some research. Do you consider Thomas Nagel one of those? Well, Nagel's really important to this story because he published a book a few years ago called Mind and Cosmos. Yeah. And you know, Nagel's a really skeptical thinker. And he basically said, look, this neo-Darwinian materialism you're all assuming, it, it's just not going to work. It, it can't be right. And the reason for him that it can't be right is us. Mm -hmm. Just 
the fact of us, that you have conscious subjects in the universe that the universe produced, and you know, you can't get nothing, you can't get something out of nothing, to use the old argument. And Nagel was just, you know, viciously taken apart for this because yeah. he he had the audacity to question this dogma. And he, of course, wasn't saying our evolution doesn't happen or that materialism doesn't have things to offer. He was just saying these are not adequate models of what the cosmos is because the cosmos has produced minded subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Nagel's a part of that. Uh, Harold Ottman Spacher is a, a quantum physicist in um, Zurich. Um, who's a good friend of mine and who's really influenced me a lot and probably turned me into a dual aspect monist, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, Bernardo Kastrup is this Dutch computer scientist who is a card carrying idealist. Uh, and I just I just adore Bernardo. He's also an attack dog, frankly. He goes after things that he thinks are are weakly argued. Uh, even things that I probably would, be happy with like panpsychism like bernardo bernardo thinks panpsychism is just a halfway house it's just a it's just a cowardly compromise you know um, <laughs> um philip goff is a wonderful philosopher of mind who who's writing books along these lines and he actually is kind of a he is a panpsychist and is articulating this view i think very elegantly and mostly through the history of science by the way mm. wrote a book last year called galileo's error which is really a, a wonderful book. Um, so th- those are some of the the major the, ma- the major figures. David Chalmers, of course, is usually the person cited here. Um, he has been moving in a panpsychist direction for a long time. It's unclear to me whether he's there or not. Yeah. Stuart Kaufman is another figure that's often mentioned in these conversations. I don't want to speak for any of these men, but I, I think they're all kind of frustrated with the standard conventional picture, and they're trying to push the conversation into new territory. And that's really this is this kind of quiet renaissance I write about in the flip. It's I'm not really writing about my ideas; I'm writing about their ideas and how you know things are moving, things are changing. And um, I think very hopefully so. Well, it's important that the what the work that you're doing, which is sort of in a sense, kind of transcribing some of this message into into the work of a public intellectual. I mean, that's really how I feel the spirit of your book. Yeah. Um, you know what it really represents, and and we need that because perhaps you know the inspiration that would like if if we can shift the cultural consciousness, just the you know of those people who are you know, everyday individuals, rather than, you know, the people at the top in academia and in the kind of, you know, the the iron tower or the ivory tower, as it were, perhaps, you know, you know, having that grassroots change will actually then trickle up, as it were, <laughs> to, uh, to those. That's part of the strategy. I, you know, I work in a dean's office now in a school of humanities, and I'm actually really, really concerned about the humanities and in some ways care most about them. So I, I also think this argument serves the humanities. You know, believe it or not, the humanities are wedded very much to materialism as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very much about reducing the human experience to this or that historical context or this or that social um, identity or political um, dynamic or what have you. And these, all of these things work. 
uh, and they're all true, but the end result is a fundamentally depressing picture of the human being. And I personally think that's why the humanities are being sidelined today and why they're essentially in crisis. Um, it's because they've offered a picture of the human that is simply unattractive and and not true by the way it's not just unattractive it's not fully true it's partially true and uh, and so that's kind of what i'm after too i'm i, I really want to nudge the humanists and the humanities out of their their doldrums yeah i mean you you say um uh there this is sort of bringing us court towards the um uh question of the culture wars which you bring up towards the end of of your book and I, the, what what you were just uh, describing about how the humanities are are essentially hyper-emphasizing differentiation, you know, into kind of the silos of cultural specificity and and losing a kind of sense of of the universal, at really in the aftermath of a critique of the universal that we saw with post-structuralism and stuff like that. Um, and so I really like this passage um, that from page one seventy four in your book. Ultra-conservative ideologues and their followers in the United States attempt to deny the integrity and importance of the differences of others and so subsume them into their own understanding of universal human sameness, which inevitably takes some form of whiteness or Protestantized Christianity. Intellectuals on the far left make the opposite comparative mistake. They overemphasize human difference, usually coded as racial, gendered, or sexualized, to the point where all human sameness is relegated to the margins or demonized as colonizing, imperial, hegemonic. They may do this for just moral reasons, but the results are nevertheless less than ideal, an endless fracturing of the liberal community into this and that political identity, which then fractures again and again and again until there is no shared and universal human basis from which to act effectively and robustly in the political realm. So I take it from you know your perspective that this is really the situation in the humanities now right is this kind of that's the that's the ideology of the humanities so what would have to change in the humanities do you think because of course your book is really an argument for the humanities um but i take it you believe there needs to be some reform in some in some way so how do we get to that place where the humanities is capable of kind of maybe moving past this place of you know just completely demonizing any kind of human sameness or, or, or something that would bring us together? Well, first of all, that, that impulse to emphasize difference is crucial and is a gift and is part of what I call the prophetic function of the humanities. And I think moving forward, we can't make the mistake of demeaning that or denying that. We have to you know, we have to embrace what we've learned over the last 30, 40 years through post-structuralism and post-modernism and all of these these um, critical theories. But to really reform or revise the humanities, we can't it can't just be yet another yet another critique of this or that. It has to be a metaphysical change. Mm. There there has you know, one of the arguments of the book is that that the politics of knowledge in the university is really based on a metaphysics. Um, and the more real something is, or the more real something is considered in the, in the university, the more funds it gets and the more prestige it has. So, you know, you have physics up here on top, which is really about the ultimate nature of the real world, which is the material, what matter, 
how matter behaves. And then you have chemistry and then you have biology and then you have the social sciences in the middle, which are still about material properties, but now with these pesky people, these pesky uh, actors doing them. And then you get down here at the bottom and you have the humanities, which are really studying almost entirely subjective or conscious states. And then somewhere under the screen here, Kyle, you have the study of religion, which is sort of like the lowest of the low, because not only are they studying subjective states, they're studying impossible objective states. Um, and the reason that's the metaphysics of the university is because we operate with a materialistic worldview. We think matter is real and subjectivity is unreal. And so that's how the disciplines line up. If we flip and we now consider that consciousness is fundamental and the material world is actually secondary, <laughs> the sciences will become a division of the humanities, by the way. Um, because We can you know, only hope. Well, as it turns out, all science really is human. You know, I, yeah. I personally have never run into a science or a scientist who wasn't, wasn't human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe so. I mean, I, you know, I also study abduction accounts. You know. <laughs> but my point is, is that science is ultimately a function of human consciousness. And if that's what's primary in the world, then I think the disciplines will literally flip. And um, I don't. I don't want the humanities now to be on top of physics or chemistry. That's not my argument. Yeah. My argument is that, you know, we're, the, the social world and our societies are going to get more and more dangerous and more and more stupid, frankly, to the extent that they sideline the humanities and they sideline these questions that we're asking. And so how do we how do we make the humanities more important and how do we put them, insert them into the center of culture and I think the way we do that is we offer a picture or a vision of the human that is affirming and that is positive and even cosmic and that engages the scientific forms of knowledge that doesn't pass around them or ignore them. And so I, I think I personally think it's a deep, deep metaphysical change that has to happen. And I don't know, frankly, if that's possible. Um, the flip would suggest it's actually probably not at this point. Because these are individuals, you know, these are not whole disciplines flipping. These are individual scientists and technicians flipping and not even admitting it until they're retired. Mm. So their disciplines and their professions are successfully holding these things at bay. Mm. Um, and but, you know, one of my arguments is that eventually this 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 isn't going to work anymore. And we're just going to get to a point where we have to just say we no, consciousness is not produced by the brain. Yes, it seems to be primary. And so what does that mean? And I think that'll take many, many decades, if not centuries. But it seems like we're moving in that direction, wouldn't you say? I mean, it seems like there are more people talking about that now than perhaps a few decades. Well, I don't know. I mean, that the 60s and 70s were quite, you know, a wild time of, of provocative thinking. But do you feel like it's going, you know, in a positive direction? Or do you think actually people are becoming more rigid in their dogmas of materialism? I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not a utopian thinker. Um, I'm more of a realist here. I, I mean, when people say that to me, I'm like, well, maybe you and I think that way. But you know, yeah. I, I live in Texas. Oh, you know, and it, it feels different down here than it feels in Cambridge or, or or New York City or wherever you happen to be. Um, I 
I'm also from the Midwest, and so I'm very skeptical of elite intellectuals, including myself, by the way, saying things are changing, um, mm. because I know for a fact, I don't know for a fact, I, I suspect from my personal experience that things are not changing, and that people are just as uneducated and silly as they ever, ever were. Yeah. Well, recent events seem to confirm that. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we can hope. Um, yeah, let's, yeah, Yeah, let's cling to some vestige of hope, please. (laughs) Um, so, you know, one of the things that I think if there was anything in the book that I was sort of curious about, um, uh, I mean, I was curious about many things, but maybe where I was like feeling a little bristling was in, in, in the discussion of religion. And I'm, I'm curious because, you know, you, the way you talk about these experiences, and I get why you do it, you're talking about it as sort of prior to religion, so underneath religion, before religion. And in a sense, uh, I think, you know, one could read your book as, as being an argument that we don't need religion in a certain kind of way, because these experiences will still happen. Um, uh, but, you know, and because many religions, as we know, have kind of contracted or rigidified into these sort of like what was at one, at one point they were expressions of this flip and then they kind of contracted into these dogmas. But do you see there being and of course, you know, you've studied this throughout your life, your professional life. Do you see there being a difference between kind of dogmatic religions and those kind of religious or contemplative traditions that preserve a kind of technology that opens one up to the flip? So I'm thinking of this thing I, I heard recently, I can't remember who, who said it, awakening is an accident, meditation makes us accident prone, right? Yeah. So so do you think that, you know, in addition to the acknowledging that the flip exists, we might also need tools and techniques to put us in the way of the flip, as it were? Yeah, so, you know, sometimes people ask me what my relationship to Roman Catholicism is, which was my birth religion. Mm. And I always say, oh, that's easy. It's tortured. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how I feel about this this topic as a whole. Um, I actually am not anti-religious, um, and I think belief and rituals and community are the primary ways that human beings remember these states mm-hmm. and pass them on from generation to generation. And so I think the religions are incredible, are kind of treasures of, of uh, uh, human civilization and of these flips, um, they just always come with this, this, this hardening, though, or this contraction in which, you know, the religion ends up saying it's, it's, the, whole, it's the whole shebang when it clearly isn't. It, it just obviously isn't. And so I hope, my hope is that in the contemporary world or the future world, we can construct or create or found religions, as it were, that don't make that mistake, you know, and that are more, that are frankly more global and more human and more diverse and more capacious than than our past religious creations have been. So I, I'm actually very, I, I would agree with everything you just said. Um, I do think, though, that when we get to the subject of the paranormal, which I think is what you were referring to, I think the paranormal paranormal experiences are proto-religious, and they are often very deconstructive. Mm-hmm. They're often taking apart the religious tradition or the mythology that's in place, and that's why they're often experienced negatively, by the way, 
or even demonically. I think the the demonic capacity or the deconstructive capacity is sort of central to what they're about. Um, and but I know as a historian of religions that you actually don't get a religion until you take a previous one apart. Mm. You know that's what the history of religions is is one religion after another being deconstructed and then reconstructed into something else. And so I just see that as a natural and healthy human response to to religious tradition. So is that anti-religious? I don't think so. But it's also not conventionally religious. You know, I don't... I, I'm always telling my students and my listeners, I'm not here to support your religious worldview, but I'm also not here to not support it. I'm here to try to understand why all these people are religious in completely different and often contradictory ways. Yeah. Um, and so that it, it just depends on who, what, how big of the human community you're going to put on your table. Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to affirm just your religion or are you going to affirm everyone's religion? And, and do you really want to do that? You know, <laughs> some people's religions are pretty, pretty destructive and pretty, pretty. They're often literally deadly, actually, to some human beings, both within them and without them. Well, that's the irony, right? Of like, you know, the kind of the 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 kind of imperative to protect certain cultures as an expression of your kind of liberal values, but then you're you know, potentially protecting a culture that actually, you know, violates your liberal values. So it's sort of like one of these, you know, paradoxes. I mean, part of it for me, Jacob, is I, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic and very pious, by the way, uber pious, I would say, deeply indebted and deeply grateful for that tradition. But I also grew up in that tradition that resulted in the suicides of young men Mm. who, who happened to be gay. And I blame the tradition. It's it's the tradition's fault. That I have no doubt about that. That it, it was wrong to condemn homosexuality in the 1970s and 80s when these young men ended their lives, and these men would not have ended their lives. Yeah, their religion not made that terrible, terrible mistake. Um, and so, I don't hesitate to blame religions for for tragedy really but that doesn't mean they're all wrong or that or that religion itself is bad i don't believe that either i think we just we have to be more um nuanced you know honest with each other yeah and it's it's clear that you don't you know because there's some you know for example richard dawkins at all (laughs) who think that you know we must purge the earth of of religion and and it seems to me that what you're saying is a bit different it's not that we can it's that we actually can't get rid of of religion that religion is an expression of the human condition in a certain kind of way and and to assume that we could you know completely purge the earth of it is is somehow you know naive and actually denying something that is quintessentially human yeah i that that's precisely my position the only way to purge the earth of religion is to purge the earth of human beings yeah maybe that's what richard wants i i don't (laughs) think i don't think so maybe he's an alien (laughs) Uh, I think he's naive, frankly, you know, when he says things like that. But, you know, he has he can say those things. It helps us to talk about them. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah, it gives us something to talk about. Um, So I want to rewind a little bit because I meant to ask you because you had mentioned, um, you know, after these four um, 
um, these four expressions of consciousness being primary, panpsychism, dual aspect monism, uh, quantum mind, and cosmopsychism. Um, my follow-up question to asking you about that was, you know, which one you find the most compelling? And you've already told us that you've been convinced to be a dual aspect monist. So I'm curious why, um, you know, and what, what was the argument that got you there? It was Harold. Um, <laughs> Harold, again, is this quantum physicist who who's been writing about dual aspect monism, primarily through the prism of Wolfgang Pauli and Carl Jung. Um, Harold's probably the world's expert on that particular friendship and how that friendship resulted in things like the concept of synchronicity and, and a lot of the things Pauli thought about quantum physics. For those of our listeners who are not aware, Pauli was essentially a walking poltergeist you know, there was something called the the Pauli effect that the physicists used to joke about uh, when he was still alive. And the Pauli effect basically boiled down to whenever Wolfgang would walk into a lab, something would blow up, break or or fall. And so the physicists were just like they were trying to keep him out of their labs, basically. And they would joke about this. This was like a running joke. And Pauli was very proud of it. He recognized it as well. But he also recognized it was part of his own neurotic makeup that he was trying to work through with, with Jung. So, okay, dual aspect monism. What dual aspect monism essentially says is that epistemologically speaking, the world is two. In other words, we all have this experience of being a subject looking out onto a world of objects. That, but, but really, it's one. And that's why it's called dual aspect monism. And the argument is, is what the human brain and body does is essentially split this unity into a duality in our experience. Mm -hmm. But it's never really two things. It only seems to be two in our experience. The reason I like that so much is because it fits my data again. It's not just like a random choice of mine. And the reason I, I most like it is it explains paranormal phenomena to me very well. You know, a paranormal event is essentially an event in which that one world has split off into an objective physical event and a subjective state, and they match perfectly, or they almost perfectly. And the reason they match is they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. They've split off of this, this unus mundus or this one world. And so to me, that explains very well what people report over and over and over again and why these objective physical events correspond so closely to these subjective internal events. Uh, and it also explains to me why so much of comparative mystical literature is basically about shutting down the brain and the body and realizing this deeper state of unity underneath or behind it. Um, so, I mean... I, I adopt it tentatively as the best abstract model for what I see in my materials and in the people I talk to. But I'm not, I'm not pious about it. I'm not bound to it. If somebody comes along with a better yeah. model, I'm, I'm there, you know? And it seems like it, to be intellectually responsible, really, is to be kind of open in that way, right? Yeah. So would you consider... Uh, the Kashmir Shaivite tradition to be a dual aspect monistic tradition? Well, I think a lot of actually the tantric traditions of India can be framed in this way. 
the thing about dual aspect monism is it affirms, you see it affirms both the material world and the, the spiritual or mental world. Mm. And the one world is not just mind, yeah. but it's also not just matter. It's neither material nor mental. It's some third kind of psychoid presence that is as physical as it is spiritual. And so, I mean, it depends on how you want to interpret Kashmir Shaivism. You know, some people would say, oh, it's more of an idealism. But to the extent these tantric schools affirm the material world as real and not as illusory, they look a lot more like dual aspect monism to me than they do just straight up idealism. Yeah. Um, idealism tends to dismiss the material realm as an illusion, um, just as, of course, materialism dismisses the mental world as an illusion. And dual aspect monism basically holds them in tension mm -hmm. and says they're both true, but they're not ultimately true. Mm -hmm. There's something that's more basic that's ultimately true. Mm. So um, I, I want to kind of rewind all the way to the beginning um, to ask about something um, regarding, you know, your early career um, that you've already mentioned. But before we do that, is there anything else that you um, feel is important to kind of mention or highlight about the flip and, and, and anything that we've been talking about? Not really, Jacob. <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of territory. Yeah. No, I mean, I could talk more about it, but I don't think it's necessary. No, I don't think it's necessary. I think people need to just buy the book. Yeah. I think that's the best idea. Yeah, for, all their, for all their friends and relatives. <laughs> exactly. Please buy at least 10, 10 to 20. No, it's a really great book. And actually, I have to say, this is one of my favorite covers I have uh, I've ever seen. I love the cover of this book. I like can't stop looking at it. I just the blue and the orange together. It's just there's something so satisfying about it. Yeah. Also, it's very smooth. Yeah. <laughs> so Penguin. So this was actually published in 2018. Oh. Okay. But but Penguin in London picked it up and published it again this last spring. Their covers beautiful as well. These are two of the best covers I've ever uh, any of my books I've seen. Uh, the the new covers in Escher painting that that i had not seen um and but you can see it online it's it's fine they're both beautiful beautiful books yeah it's absolutely beautiful and you know covers do matter i bet you know people are going to pick it up for sure also the you know the title is catchy too i like this cover too because if you look at that little guy flipping i always tell my readers well i'm not sure if this is a flip or a flop <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I, don't know I don't know if he's going to land on his feet. I'm a little worried. Yeah, that's my. That's kind of why I like it. <laughs> you got to wait and see. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, so yeah, I just wanted to, you know, uh, go back to this since you did say before our conversation that you were okay talking about it because I think it's interesting and and I often I often find I don't do it really intentionally but I often find. At the end of these interviews, I end up talking about politics in some way. And, you know, we were talking about publishing Kali's Child. It was a huge, um, you know, a scandal from, you know, for certain uh, people. And I just wanted to kind of maybe talk a little bit about why it was so provocative and why people had such a problem with it. Um, just so, you know, for people that aren't familiar with that whole um, debacle. Well, it's probably important to contextualize, too. So I... You know, I began my, uh, I did my undergraduate training in a Catholic seminary, which was essentially a, a same-sex community, all men. And I really um, was confronted there again and again with the issue of sexual orientation. 
in this all-male community. And, you know, more to the point, I was confronted with simply the empirical fact that gay men tended to be attracted to the priesthood and straight men tended not to be or were the ones who were leaving the seminary. And so I became really interested in this as a confused straight guy, you know, and I, and I, and I want to emphasize confused <laughs> as a really confused straight guy in the early 1980s, just basically a kid. I was deeply puzzled by how my own religious tradition was so homophobic and so condemning of homosexuality on the outside, but was so affirming of homosexuality and was so homoerotic on the inside. And I was so struck by that contradiction, really, mm -hmm. that um, I, you know, I couldn't put that aside. And the reason I was attracted to Hinduism was because of all these tantric traditions that appeared to have a place for straight heterosexual men in it who could then love the goddess, as it were. You know, the divine wasn't always a male god, as you have in Catholicism. You have these goddess figures. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe sexual orientation in, in males works differently in India. And so I, that's how I got into the study of India. It was it was not some neutral, objective decision. It was driven by this earlier experience of the seminary. And when I when I studied Bengali and got to Calcutta and was looking at the Bengali and then looking at the English, it was just so obvious to me that Ramakrishna himself was what we would call today gay. Of course, there was no word for that in the 19th century. But he was very much attracted to young male disciples. It doesn't mean he was having sex with them. I wasn't making an argument about anything genital. I was making an argument about the, the structure of male desire and how this desire, in his case, was, was attached to young male disciples or to male deities, and that he was actually quite phobic around uh, sexually active females, mm. uh, and that he preferred that the goddess be a pure mother and not a lover, as you have in, the, in a lot of these tantric traditions. So the, the model worked beautifully for me as well with Ramakrishna, although I didn't find what I was looking for. Um, and this was 19, I, I finished that dissertation in 93 and published it in 95, uh, the BJP or the, the Hindu right came into power in 94. And so the timing was just really quite awful, actually. And Ramakrishna was, of course, the guru of Swami Vivekananda, who yeah. was sort of the darling of the Hindu right. And so the argument that Vivekananda's guru was was a homoerotic mystic, and, and I meant that with all um, positive, in all positive terms, there there was no condemnation on my part yeah. around homosexuality. Um, although there was a moral struggle with some of what we would think of as the pederastic qualities of some of these engagements. I, I don't want to hide that either. Um, I was just struggling in the book with what I was seeing in the text and trying to make sense of it. And what the reactions tried to do and essentially successfully accomplished was essentially presented me as making it all up. Yeah. You know, I was this evil Western white uh, uh, colonialist, um, and I hated Hinduism, and I was out to to demean the tradition, which, of course, couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, I happen to be a white male for sure in Western, but I love the tradition, and you, when you read the book, you'll see, I think, 
fairly quickly and profoundly how much I adored and still adore the saint. Mm. Um, but the tradition or the right, the right wing of the tradition could not put together homosexuality and an appreciation for the tradition. It had to be one or the other. Mm. Uh, and that's what created the scandal really was, yeah. was that, um, did anyone warn you? Did anyone say, you know, this might create a really big splash in not a great way? So I had a number of tutors, and yes, um, I was told that. But, you know, Jacob, it's one thing to be told that, and it's another thing to experience it. Yeah. It's, it's, when you were young and ambitious, you were young and you know, hopeful. <laughs> well, and, you know, as a young intellectual, I was also so excited frankly about what i was seeing mm. and it was so it was so powerful and i had had my own shaktipat experience as well in calcutta and so i was also i think there was a religious kind of impulse behind all of this that was driving it as well and so it was all really um genuine and sincere and powerful mm. um it wasn't it wasn't a project driven by some kind of academic or professional concern, because of course I, I didn't think of those things. Um, and it was quite stupid to do, frankly, professionally. It, it could have easily ruined and ended my career instantly. Um, well, it did so make you have to change kind of tracks in a way, right? No, it did end my career in many ways. I don't, I don't study Hinduism or India or, or any Indian language. I haven't since about oh two or so. Um, so in has some ways, been, has that been sad for you to have to leave yeah, that? It was terrible. It was, it was, it, there was a long mourning process. You know, I had to go through, I mean, I had studied the culture and the languages for since 1985. So almost 17 years at that point. Mm. And so, you know, to leave something you love and something you were trained to do and invested that much time in was, was actually devastating. Um, but I didn't have a choice. I mean, I, it was, and it was a gradual leaving. It wasn't like a decision one day. It was, you know, it took two or three years to, to essentially leave. Mm. Uh, and that's why I end up studying the California counterculture because it was a way I could use my training in an indirect fashion and, and talk about the same things, but not have the same political, um, consequences yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and most people think today, you know, I, I get most people think today that I, I, I've always studied the paranormal and that, you know, this is what I do. And I, I have to remind them, look, I spent 20 years studying male sexuality. I didn't I didn't touch the paranormal for, for 20 years. Um, so don't you know, don't imagine that I just, you know, float from one paranormal state to another. I mean, I, I spent 20 years talking about genitals and male <laughs> Male sexual acts and male desire. I, I, you want to talk about materialism? I'll talk about materialism with you. Yeah. You know, let's get let's get down. Let's let's really get let's really get specific here. So I, I totally appreciate this emphasis on the body and sexuality and gender. But it, that was then and this is now. And I think both of those those enterprises are completely legitimate, and and completely necessary. Were you, um, you know. I mean, I guess it was all a surprise, right? But um, I'm curious about like how you know we know how India responded in the in the kind of um, you know right um, oriented uh, thinking uh, that was pervasive and still is quite pervasive. 
Um, but how was the, you know, your own colleagues in, you know, this Western academic environment, did they not back you up? Did they run away, you know, from that scandal? I mean, so, so it depends. It depends on who, you know, what field you're talking about. I think in the study of Hinduism, I was essentially um, isolated um, and people were very unwilling to associate with me or my name because they were afraid they would then get targeted yeah. and harassed and attacked. I understand that. There were a few people who stood up for me, both in India and in the U.S., but they were established scholars and had the capacity and, and the, frankly, the tenure to do that. Yeah. Um, outside of those immediate circles, um, the, res the response to the story or the experience has been very positive and very warm. I mean, intellectuals understand that, that hard intellectual work often gets you into real political trouble. And so when they hear the story, they're like, you know, it's essentially street cred. It's like, okay. And honestly, Jacob, I think it's kind of why people will listen to me when I want to talk about paranormal experiences. In the back of their head, they're saying, oh, he, 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 went, through it. he went through the real stuff. Yeah. You know what? I may not like what he's saying here, but you know what? I'm going to listen. <laughs> you know? So I... I, th I honestly, I think there's some street cred there. And I don't mean to guess what's in the minds of my colleagues, but I think that's at work. And I also think that a lot of people, to, to kind of jo join the two topics, I think a lot of people are in the closet on this topic, the paranormal or the flip. Yeah. I think a lot of people are flipped. I think a lot of people have had these experiences. And the reason they don't want to talk about them isn't because they don't think they're important. It's just they don't know how to talk about them. And so when I come in and sort of naively just start talking about them, they're like, oh, I guess you can talk about them. And I guess you can use our stuff to talk about them. And it makes sense. And so they're like, huh. You know, so I get asked all the time, what do you do with all the pushback? And I'm like, what pushback? You yeah. know, it's like people want to talk about this. And um, so I think the two things are related. Yeah. I think my desire to talk about sex and spirit and now my desire to talk about mind and matter are really just two sides of the same coin. Well, and do you think that maybe that, you know, pretty traumatizing experience of, you know, being kind of rejected on a variety of levels actually liberated you to really talk openly about <laughs> these things? Because you're like, well, pff, it's not going to get any worse than that. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it can get worse. Um, oh. But, yeah, I, I always think of the opening scene. You, you remember the Jack Nicholson Batman movie? Mm -hmm. I, the opening scene is Batman's chasing this criminal through this, this uh, factory, and he falls in a vat of acid, and, and he comes out the Joker. And the reason he comes out the Joker is he's essentially died. He's essentially had a near-death experience, and he's liberated from any... Um, of his previous conceptions. And so he, he becomes evil. Okay. That, that's a problem, I guess, but you know, he's free now and he thinks everything's really, really funny. Um, and that's why he becomes the Joker. And there's, there's a part of that. I mean, that I can really appreciate that once you've been through such an acid bath, mm. you do see the humor in people's positions and, and you are perceived to be evil by the way, <laughs> even though you know, you're not, you know, so it's, 
That's so interesting. I've never heard the Joker used as a, as a kind of metaphor for the spiritual, for the flip. I love it. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just made it up right there. But um, I don't know. It's always I've always thought of that scene. But I'm I'm a superhero geek too, so that's that's part of the problem. No, I love it. Um, so you know, one last question about this. There's, so it seems like it's been intensifying this kind of, um, you know, allergy to white. Uh, intellectuals, academics studying India at all or studying Hinduism. You know, I'm thinking of recent events with um, Mark Singleton and um, and James Mallinson um, around and around, you know, this idea of like the colonizing academic, um, you know, basically colonizing again through, you know, uh, intellectual practice of some kind. Uh, you know, is there any, I mean, you know, besides the obvious kinds of ways in which that can be seen as an exaggeration or problematic, is there is is there a basis for that sensitivity? You know, is there you know what is kind of the the nuanced perspective um, by means of which we might problematize certain ways of doing scholarship on India? Is or is that even a thing? So I think this is actually related to the flip. Jacob, I mean, first of all, the the colonial reading of Western scholarship, of course, is historically based, and there there is a reason for that. A lot of scholarship in the 19th and early 20th, and even in, well into the 20th centuries, was was essentially linked to a kind of European colonialism. And so, the when Indian critics point that out, they're not wrong. Yeah. Um, I think though. Okay, this this is where it relates to the flip. The problem with that is that post-colonial theory presumes the ultimacy of the social or cultural ego, right? It presumes that who we really are is the Indian man or woman or the American man or woman, and that that social identity and skin color defines entirely who we are and what reality is. But once someone has had an, uh, an enlightenment experience or a kundalini awakening or some kind of form of non-duality, that that doesn't work so well anymore. And it relativizes those cultural and political histories. It doesn't remove them. It doesn't make them wrong. You know, that's where the critique has to stand. But it certainly, it certainly relativizes them in a profound way. Um, the way I put it is, you know, if reality is truly non-dual, does it just stop being non-dual in Afghanistan or or Turkey or, or East Germany? Where exactly does it stop being non-dual? And if it's non-dual in Houston, as much as it's non-dual in Calcutta, why on earth can't a white guy or a, a, a white woman have this experience like uh, you know, a Hindu or, or, or a Buddhist or something. So I, I think that's the flip, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what, which of these two poles are you privileging? Are you privileging this political, social ego body? Okay, then your post-colonial critique is ultimate and definitive. But if you're privileging the Enlightenment experience or the non-dual experience, then it's not, it's, it's no longer ultimate. It's, it's a part of the puzzle, but it's, it's secondary. And I think that's really the problem I've always had with my critics is that they've their post-colonial critique presumes Western materialism, actually. Yes, yeah. 
it it itself is colonized yeah already and the deeper metaphysic of non-duality is precisely that which is not colonized and that's what i've always felt i've really been arguing and um, so I think the critiques of someone like myself are them, themselves expressions of, of a colonial mindset and the kinds of worldviews or experiences I was trying to uncover in Kali's Child are precisely pre-colonial or frankly anti-colonial. Yeah. So I, I share, I share their, their anti-colonial sentiments I, I, and, and, and I understand them and I accept that critique, I really do. And I even accept the observation that there were aspects of Kali's child and myself that were, were colonizing. I get that. Um, but there were, there was no other way that it could have been otherwise, just given the the period and, and the way we're socialized as human beings. And I've worked ever since to try to correct that. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I really appreciate the way you express that because uh, I think it's the clearest way someone's, um, kind of unpacked the problem because I, I I feel like that comes up for me a lot with the the post-colonialist interpretation or understanding of cultural appropriation when it comes to things like yoga or you know uh, traditions contemplative traditions from you know not a United States context India South Asia and and there's this idea that like you don't have any right to that over there those traditions because they belong to that culture but that reading itself is a misappropriation of that culture which is those those teachings are universal they're they're written in a universal way it's not like you know the fruits of meditation or insight are only for you know this particular culture at this particular time no and so even that in and of itself what is attempting to kind of fight cultural appropriation is itself a misappropriation of it Right. And it also presumes that the Indian traditions or the Chinese Buddhist traditions or whatever traditions you're talking about themselves weren't appropriating all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, and th this is what we know from the history of religions, that there's no such thing as a pure tradition. There, yeah. There's just a complete fiction that all religious traditions are always appropriating anything and everything in their midst. And they're fusing it into new new forms. Um you know, my Roman Catholicism was like that. I mean, it was just voracious. It would just pick up anything and appropriate it to use that kind of language. So I, whenever I hear the critique of appropriation, I get suspicious because it seems to want to be arguing for some kind of cultural purity or, yeah, or an essentializing of, of and I traditions. don't think there is such a thing. I yeah. think that's a complete fiction. And, um, but Again, I understand the colonial context of that. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 just something we have to struggle with and and listen to and 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 I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, this has been a really wide ranging and beautiful conversation, and um, I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to chat with you, Jeff. So thank you so much for the generosity of offering your time. Um, just want to mention one last time to those listening that. Uh, um, uh, Jeff's uh, 2018 book, but recently uh, republished in a beautiful new cover, is The Flip, Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. And um, yeah, pick it up. It's really, you know, a, such an excellent book. And um, I'm really excited to uh, introduce it to people who haven't found it yet. Thank That's you, good. Jeff. Thank you. It was, a, it was fun.